Good morning. These guys do such a nice job. Can we give them a round of applause? Man. During that last song, there's a line that said, whom the sun sets free. Now, uh, anybody here trip over that phrase like I did? I stopped worshiping God altogether and started wondering, is it who the sun sets free? Is it whom the sun sets free? Which one is it? Whom? So that's right. I'm sure they checked it out before they put it to print. Anyway, the, our storyteller for the day is just as quirky as me. Peggy, come, come on up and tell us a story. Thank you, my dear. Hello, and good morning. I like that about you. Okay. To bring you into my story, I'd like to share one of my family's famous old sayings. When my dad, my brother, and my uncles would go to hunting camp, they would often make snide comments about the quality of the food preparation. One guy would be stuck being the camp cook, and he would um, sometimes not do a terrific job. And the other guys would make little comments about what he made, and then they would say, but it's just the way I like it. Which basically kept them from being elected the next camp cook. <laughs> With that in mind, the theme of my story is life's messy, but it's but it's just the way I like it. This messiness in life has often meant that much of what happens is unpredictable. Things I'm suddenly faced with are often what I'd consider less than a little ideal, not quite what I had in mind, and um, possibly uh, not what I had imagined or in, in any way. However, despite occasional deep feelings of doubt, fear, Temporary hopelessness and sometimes even anger. I've always known that God has been, from early on, lighting my way, even when that seemed like a little flicker of light. Through my life, though my life has been terrific in so many ways, some people who know me might say, adding up a few of the things that have happened to me in, say, the past 10 or 20 years they've known me, that my life could be compared to the name of a series of sort of dark comedy children's books called Lemony Snicket, a series of unfortunate events. Have you heard of that? I mean, it's almost comical, the crazy things that have happened to me. Surviving a crash um, into a swamp while on a hot air balloon ride, for instance. My husband, Ron, and I were on this company trip, and we went on this hot air balloon ride, and suddenly the balloon started to drop from the sky. And moments earlier, I had seen an alligator in the water below us. We were in Florida, yes, and uh, we crashed. The balloon started to go under, the basket started to go under, and my side was very far under, and I was looking up to start collecting the balloon so we wouldn't smother. I would much rather crash into a tree than drown under the balloon. But anyway, in the middle of all this, suddenly the balloon started again, and the flame was shooting past my head right here. The flame's about that high on those guys. And all of a sudden, my husband and the pilot popped out of the water and flew away and left me there by myself <laughs> in the swamp. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Ron, to his defense, Ron did try to get the guy to put the, the balloon down, but I don't know if you've seen how fast they take off. They were quite a distance really quickly, so it wouldn't have, wouldn't have worked. So anyway, it was a pretty good story, and it wasn't so funny at the time, but we can all laugh at it now. The first messy situation I recall was occasionally hearing my mom say that she had imagined having only a couple of kids, but ended up having four. Being the fourth, I often felt like I might be the one too many and imagined that perhaps I wasn't altogether welcome in the world. So I tried to earn a spot by being funny, taking risks, being fun, and being pretty outgoing. I tried to make the best of it. I grew up knowing that my parents basically believed in God, but had had bad church experiences in the past. However, in addition to thinking, we'd benefit from a little positive input from Sunday school and occasional weeks of vacation Bible school, I think my mom probably appreciated a little break from some or all of the four of us on 
Sunday mornings regularly, and then for that glorious week of mornings five in a row, whatever vacation Bible school that someone invited us to. Someone took the time to invite the non-church kids, and we went. And that was key. In my earliest Sunday school times, I remember a picture of Jesus knocking on a door. Do you guys remember this one? He's standing there. He really looked like he'd really like to get in, but he was politely waiting for someone to answer the door. Later, I learned that it came from a Bible verse saying, Behold, I stand at the door, and I knock on the door of your heart. And if you let me in, we'll have a friendship. We'll get to know each other. And I thought, wow, Jesus knocks on the door. My heart? Like, wow, I'm somebody. And it really struck a chord in my heart. At about age seven was the next messy situation that changed my life. We moved out in the, countries, in the country, and uh, the siblings all wanted to go for a horseback ride one day. And um, my mom said, only if you take Peggy, because I'm the baby of the family. And they threw me on the back of someone's horse behind the saddle, and we were riding along, and we were up on Swede Hill in our country town in Yakima. And suddenly a, f a flock, a swarm of bees... I would say, almost say a flock, they were big, I started to sting the horses. And the horse I was on reared and started bucking and threw me off and ran off. And I landed on my head and sustained a pretty serious head injury, just kind of peeled back the whole top of my scalp. And uh, I had a pretty serious concussion. And um, lo and behold, we were right in front of the house of two student nurses who came running out and saved my life, took me to the ER, and then the thing they did that was really amazing to me is they visited me in the hospital. They showed up, they brought me this little Christian cowboy adventure book and invited me to Sunday school at Wiley Heights Covenant Church. And that became my church home. And I was not at all like the rest of the congregation. They were all either Swedish and or related. I was the only one <laughs> that was not. So if you have ever been the, the kid whose family didn't do church and you felt like an orphan, I was a church orphan for lots of years there. But gradually I became part of that family and I learned what a church family was like there. And I've often said that about this church. This is a family. You have rough times, everybody's there. You have good times, everybody's there. That we need to be there for each other. That's super important. And we need to invite those who will become church orphans into our family. Super important. Okay. Done with that. No more horses, no more head injuries for now. Um, everyone, I already got that. I grew up in a family that, uh, in this church family, and continued to go to youth retreats, summer camp, Covenant Beach, if any of you remember it. And eventually, Chick, which is Covenant High in Christ, our national youth conference. I went as a camper in 77, and I was a counselor from Chick 80 for about 30 years. I love youth. I love to welcome kids into the church. I love for everybody to feel like they can come here and that they have equal, equal footing in front of the Lord, that God loves all of us and he knows us all. Um, College years were a struggle, keeping my feet on solid ground despite lots of the regular common tough challenges. I graduated with a teaching degree and was hired in Yakima at my first youth ministry job, starting a program where there was none at a church. That was interesting. My first event that I had done all this planning for, it was myself and one student. It was, it was a, but it was one of the best times I ever had. We had a great time, and then things really grew, and after a year or two, I started thinking, okay, so this is up and running. Um, is there something else I should be doing? And I went to Chick, um, 84, I believe, and met Steve Sprunger, who used to be the most amazing youth pastor of Mr. Allen Covenant Church, and made such an impact on so many kids' lives that never would have that never would have been in church and their families had it not been for that welcome that was extended and all the crazy things we did. He loved youth. I've always loved youth. Youth are, it's the most important time in a lot of people's lives and this church has always had that be a high priority and it's super high priority to me. Um, once uh, I was here and met my husband and we got married right here 
when the church, when the carpet was orange <laughs> and the lights were yellow, red, and it was kind of hideous in here, not so much better. Um, then another couple of life's messy situations started to happen. When my daughter Grace was in seventh grade and my other daughter was in third grade, Hannah, I was diagnosed with breath, can breath cancer. Breast cancer. And um, I thought, well, when didn't expect that. And a bunch of us at the time had cancer. Jerry Palm had cancer. Um, a couple of the people, I wish I could say everybody's name right now, half of us survived, half of us didn't. But when I went through it, I, I was uncommonly brave, and I thought, that's a win-win situation. If I, if I survive, I win, and I'm with the Lord. If I die, if I died, I meant. The other way around, excuse me. If I live, I get to watch my girls grow up. I get to enjoy this life a little longer, and that's what happened. And I had several years of recovery after that, and chemo and surgeries, and I'm here today. I think it's 16 years since then now. So, yeah. um, it's a good thing, survivors. <laughs> kind of got through that, and uh, my, I think Gracie was graduating from high school, or maybe Hannah was, and, um, I was walking by a tomato plant one day in my yard and I pushed a bamboo stake down next to it in the nice soft dirt and the stick broke and I landed on it and severely damaged my eye and went through about 15 surgeries trying to get it fixed and hoping to get my vision back. And during that time, a number of people came to me and said, we're gonna pray for healing. And I do truly honestly believe that God chooses sometimes, even today, to make some really miraculous healing things happen. But in my case, it didn't happen. And I am probably forever blind in my right eye. And then during all of that, I inherited, I found that um, an inherited cornea disorder took, started to bother my left eye. So I've had two kind people give me their corneas for this eye and three for this eye. I've looked through five other people's eyes in my lifetime. And I'm really, really thankful for that. And um, it was hard. Um, several times I prayed for healing, and it didn't happen. But, and it meant that I had years of suffering, often discouragement and despair. I didn't snap back as quickly as I did with cancer. I didn't understand why God didn't heal me. I never did have my vision restored and my damaged eye. And have had these transplants I mentioned. Um, I'm very thankful I still have vision in this eye and because vision is super important to me. I sew a lot. I love to teach sewing. I love to do crafts and ceramics, and those are all super important to me. So I've been really, really thankful. But to bring this all together, I've always been pretty outgoing and hospitable. I have a passion to make others feel welcome and included, and especially kids and young adults. I've had an opportunity to use some of these really not so special things that have happened to reach out to others who were way more scared than I was and share information and maybe even save a few people. So God's used these things. And the unexpected messy situations of my life have developed into even greater sensitivity to me in my own need for God and appreciation for his overwhelming presence through the long haul. Several verses from the Bible have been super meaningful to me, and I'd love to share them. Several were scripture songs. Do you ever learn songs better if there are uh, verses better when they're a song? One was from Chick, and it said, I will lift my eyes to the hills and their creator who made all heaven and earth. For he watches me, will not sleep or never slumber. He's ever over me. As I come and I go, I have faith for I know that his care is sufficient for me. Winter warmth and light and a shady place in summer, he's ever over me. That's a good one. A little nervous, not my best performance, not intended to be, but that was a great one. That is from Psalm 121. And then um, the other one is Romans 8.28. For all things work together for good. Not they're always good, but they work together for good. 
for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. Sometimes, like the food prepared at hunting camp, things weren't exactly the way I'd have preferred them to be. But I knew God was still there with me and that he is strong in my weakness and that he's powerful when I'm weak. And that's hard for me because I'm not really a layback, quiet little person. I have often sung a scripture song, another one, to myself when life gets really messy and I'm really in a tough patch and it is, your grace is sufficient for me. Your grace is sufficient for me. Your power is perfected in weakness. Your grace is sufficient for me. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ might dwell in me. 2 Corinthians 12.9. So again, I'm Peggy Johnson, and I am your scripture reader today, and it is from 2 Corinthians. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll give you a moment to look it up if you want to use your Bible. Okay. Since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we will live with him in our dealing with you. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here. And today, we're going to talk about another way to be in the world. I have always been confused by this apparent paradox in the Bible about how we ought to be weak because that's the way God's strength operates best through us. It's always been interesting it's been intriguing, but it hasn't really landed uh, in a comprehensible way for me. I think part of it is context. I came to this country in 1981 as an immigrant. And immigrants come here because they want to succeed. And the way they understand success is through hard work. It's through discipline. It's through saying no. It's through putting on a hard face and working hard and Hopefully, before you die, you get to enjoy some of your success. But you're okay dying because you come here not for yourself, but for your children and their children. It's a sort of a generational view that immigrants have. And so they're happy to make sacrifices. And so I grew up around that kind of ethic and culture and view about how to be in this world. You had to work hard. You had to be greedy. You had to understand that it's survival of the fittest. And you are striving to be the fittest. This is what it meant to be an American. That's why I was here. And so I come to America and I hear about this gospel of grace that says actually the way to be is to be weak. We want you to be last. We want you to die. These are words that were really new and fresh to my immigrant years. What about you? How are you doing uh, in this regard? My admission is that this is still quite fuzzy for me, and this is brand new to me, but it really is beginning to pervade my way of being, and I am reassessing uh, my relationship to money, my relationship to interactions, my relationship to relationships to people, my relationship to work, my relationship really to sum it all up to status. Status is such a powerful drive that our society lives to achieve. And so I had to sort of do this in a way that makes sense for me. And for me, this means charts and graphs. This is what I need for my brain to understand. And so here we have, on, on, in the y-axis, we have function, and in the x-axis, we have form. And there's a direct relationship I'm learning between function and form. 
So the better your form, the better your function. And if you want to have better functioning or high function in your life, you have to have really good form. And we know this to be true, for example, in the world of sports. I know this from running. I uh, injured myself out of running, and then I discovered something called chi running. Uh, that's taking advantage of gravity, and it's sort of running as a controlled fall, right? And so I do this little slight bend from my ankles while keeping my back straight, and I'm falling, and then I step. And I keep doing that, and the key to that kind of running is that I'm not running from my extremities, but I'm running from my core muscles. It's the stiff steel route down my spine and the act of keeping my back and head straight while my ankles allows me to fall and take a natural step is utilizing gravity and my core to run. And that's allowed me to now re-enter running, and I've been doing marathons since. So that's one. Another one is golf. I don't play golf. I've never played golf, but I've been to the driving range. I remember getting a lesson from this guy in Chicago, and he said, your grip is good. You got your pinky and your index finger, you know, nicely intertwined, but you're white-knuckling the club. If you really want to play golf, if you want power through your swing, you have to become powerless in your arms and in your hands. Now, that was really counterintuitive to me. He said, you have to just Barely hold a club and then allow your core to release its power. So he said power has to come from within. And then it has to sort of be transmitted through your extremities. In this case, not just your arms, but your feet, the way you're standing. All of that, all of the extremities exist to hold structure in a loose way that allows power from the center to emanate outward. That was my golf lesson. And I grew up playing stickball also, and I remember that was, a, that was the key to stickball. You know, stickball is what I grew up on playing in the streets of New York. We'd find a wall, and then we'd use duct tape or electric tape or chalk if we had something. Draw a box from the elbows to the knees, draw an X through it, and there's a batter holding a broomstick, and there's a pitcher 60 feet away, and they're pitching. And at first when you play, you think the harder you can grip that bat, and the more you can sort of swing from your arms, the better your chance of actually connecting with the ball. But the opposite was true. In fact, you would miss the ball more often if you were rigid and intent because you were too stiff. You know, starting with your eyes, all the way through your body, you have to be as relaxed as possible. That was the best form. And you sort of let the game come to you. The ball is coming to you. Your eyes are relaxed, focused, but not sort of squinting towards it. And then your fingers are almost sort of dancing on the bat itself. And then as necessary, your body decides as you move from the core that you're going to swing through, your hands on their own decide this is the perfect time to grip. And it grips the bat in such a way that it allows power to be transferred from your hands to the bat, to the ball, and you hit a home run. And then you're the king of the neighborhood. This is the way it worked, right? But the key is form if I want it to function well. So there's a direct relationship. And this is true in many, many different areas of life. I experienced this in a conversation I had this week. It was a really difficult conversation because it was delicate. And we had to walk this emotional, relational tightrope. Really hard turns we had to negotiate in that conversation. And Susie was uh, part of that conversation. And afterwards, she said, Peter, you did that so well. And I said, really? I didn't necessarily feel that. What do you think went well? She said, well, you were so calm. And I realized that's true. That's what a, one of the core functions of a leader is to bring calm into the room. Because generally, when I'm called into a room, things are not calm. There's chaos and there's anxiety that fills the room. And then when I enter, I have to bring calm. I have to bring peace. And that's a huge part of leadership. She said, you did that. That is, I had good form in that conversation, emotionally, relationally. And it allowed for good functioning. So that's A to B. Now here's B to C. Weak and form also have a direct relationship. And it illustrates a counterintuitive nature of good form. 
You would think if you were told, without knowing anything about how life works or sports works or anything, told to have good form, you'd be hard and you'd be rigid and you'd be white-knuckling everything because that's the intuitive thing to do. But really good form is counterintuitive, and that's the difference between the professionals and the rookies. Bottom of the ninth inning, two outs, down by one, game seven of the World Series, the player up at bat has loose fingers. And he's calm on the inside. And he's focused. But he's relaxed. There's a kind of weakness in his form. Because the better the form, the weaker the form, in a sense. And you sort of have to translate what the Bible means by weak in this sense. Somebody who is strong is white-knuckling the bat. Somebody who is weak is loose on the bat. And that's the better form. Right? It allows the power from the core to translate to the ball through your body. You are a conduit of the power that's being generated from within. Key to form. And so we have A, which is function and form. Function to form is A to B. And then we have B to C, weakness to form, which allows us to say if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Do you remember math? Right? So in that case, it's a dumb, it's not even a joke, but you can laugh. That's expression. <laughs> Just give it to me, okay? All right. So we have A and C. So the best way to have good function is to be weak because weak is the best way to have form. You understand? So if you want to perform well, so if you want to succeed in America as an immigrant, somehow you have to unlock the treasure chest through weakness. It's not through strength. And that's counterintuitive. And this is what the Bible teaches. For example, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, Sermon on the Mount, I mean, if you had to pick a body of teaching of Jesus that's going to carry you for the rest of your life. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the central pieces of the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 5, which says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, notice the Bible did not say in the Greek, weak. It says the word meek. And we don't really have a great word for this in the English language because America was founded on strength, not on weakness. Right? We came and we conquered. We did violence. We overtook. Right? And so we don't have a word for that. But there is a word for it in the Greek. And it's this word meek. And the definition of it is strength under control. And Jesus says, if you are strong, but you learn how to restrain this strength, because the stronger you are, the more dangerous you are, unless you match that strength with restraint with self-control. And so when Paul lists out the fruit of the Spirit, the final one is self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. Right? Because self-control is what holds all of that together. It's your safety net. You can lack all those for a period, but if you have self-control, you can make it. You're not going to fail. Right? It, it covers your fail points. And so this, this is what Jesus is saying. And he says, if you are able to be strong and have matched self-control, then you are meek. That's good form. That's the best kind of form where you're strong in the core, but you have a form that allows that strength to be translated from within to your extremities to the ball. Then you inherit the earth or you win the game. If your goal is to win the game, this is the way to win the game. It's not by being strong, but it's by being meek. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And this is countercultural. Our culture has taught us about super high functioning for a day. But it can't last. It's not sustainable. It's not ultimately life-giving, not even to you. You can't just hit and run, Jesus is saying. The Bible is never against being first. Because Jesus, if you want to be first, the way you can be first is by being last. If you want to live, that's good. I want, you, I want to give you life to the full. But the way you get it is by dying. If you want to change someone, you have to accept them. 
These are all very counterintuitive things, but if you think about it, it's true. Five things that I learn about form versus function. Number one, when I have good form, it minimizes injury. The way you get injured is by not understanding form. And especially if whatever you're trying to do is repetitive, like have conversations or deal with money or your relationship to work. If you don't understand good form in these key arenas of life, you're going to sustain injuries. You have to learn how to be weak in your relationships. You have to learn how to be weak at work in your relationship to work. You have to learn how to be weak in your relationship to money, how to hold it loosely. Understand the nature of money. Understand its impact on you. Understand your role with money, that you are a steward of money, not a possessor of money, lest it possess you. Secondly, it allows the game to come to you. It allows you to have time and pause, to, be, to ready yourself. You stay solid. You stay connected to your core, your identity, who you are, your values, your purpose in life, your worldview, and you let the game come to you on your terms. Your best self can meet the game if it comes to you, but not if you're always chasing it down. Third, training versus trying. If you're always trying, you're always swinging for the fences. It's always fail or succeed. Whereas training says, no, life is not about failing and trying, but it's about learning and growing. And so whatever you're training to do, you can learn from it. You don't declare it or label it a fail. You say it's a lesson learned. It's a very different mindset. It allows you to be gracious and kind and patient and compassionate with yourself and with others if you're in training mode as opposed to trying mode. The way you look at people around you, your neighbors, your coworkers, your children, your spouse, your loved ones, it changes if you understand that life is about training rather than trying. And you can get there if you are understanding of the fact that it's about being weak, not about being strong. You can focus on the end game rather than your ego. Your ego is getting in the way all the time and you lose sight of why you're doing what you're doing. At the end of the day, what do you want to have achieved? At the end of the day, what emotional states do you want to have experienced? What do you want happening in this relationship? I mean, a good example that comes to mind of this is driving. I have seen many of you. I've been in cars with you. I know you lose sight of the end game when you're driving. Your goal when you got in the car wasn't to save one second off your trip. And yet that one second becomes the defining trip. It comes to define the trip because somebody cut you off or didn't signal or they waited too long at a four-way stop or didn't, they don't know how to exit a highway or get onto a highway or whatever it is. In fact, there was an article two weeks ago that rated all the driving cities in the country and Seattle was the third worst drivers in the nation. <laughs> they weren't talking about them. They were talking about us. It's a culture, you know. It's all of us. But the end game is to arrive safely. It's to be happy, to enjoy your drive because it's a bit of heaven. You get a little me time when you're in the car. You don't have to ruin it by being angry, right? But we do because our ego gets in the way. and We lose sight of the end game. But if you can be weak when you're driving, you can have a better driving experience. And then finally, uh, grace over works. I realize that if I could be strong, I will try to be strong. But I realize if I do achieve something through my strength, that achievement wrecks me. And so these are, there are two ways that the Bible teaches works doesn't work. Not only can't I get to a place where I'm good enough, but if I am good enough, being good enough is going to wreck me is going to make me bad. A recent example of this is the Me Too movement in our culture. Right? What happens when powerful men get even more powerful and they are at the top of the food chain and they have all of the money and the positional power that they could have ever wanted in life? What happened to these guys? They became self-deceived and delusional about reality. 
They didn't understand that you can't just do whatever you want to another human being. Because when they got up there to the top of the hill and they became the king of the hill, you know what happened? Nobody gave them feedback anymore. Because they were too invested uh, in, the, in sort of the supply chain that was coming off of the top dog. And so people weren't giving them honest feedback anymore. They were too scared, too invested. And so they lost sight of who they were, what they're allowed to do, how life works. And then finally, gravity caught up. And they start breaking. And that's what we call the Me Too movement in our culture today. But that to me is an e- a piece of evidence that demonstrates that works doesn't work. I was in Vancouver on Friday with my family. We like taking these day trips to Vancouver after Thanksgiving. And we were walking down Robson Street, and we saw, I saw this convenience store that were advertising lottery tickets, Canadian lottery tickets. It was $60 million. I started doing quick math in my head to what that would translate to uh, for, uh, in U.S. dollars. How much is it, guys? 60 Canadian dollars is what? <laughs> Everybody's so good at math when it comes to money. It's amazing. But what would happen if I won the lottery ticket? What if I bought one and I won? What would it do to me? Now, I know it's going to ruin me, right? You know the statistics. Like, it's something crazy, like 86% or 94% or something like that of lottery winners' lives get ruined. Because imagine what I would do if I won the lotto yesterday. Let's say I bought one ticket on Robson Street and I won. You know the first thing I would do is not tell you all. Because if people know all around me, then their relationship to me changes. Now I have something. It seems like I don't need all of it. Might as well share. And you have a mortgage and you have debt and you have needs. And you start asking and then I can't keep saying yes. And I say no and change our relationship. And now I have no friends or family left. Right? And my life is ruined. Even if you didn't know and I didn't tell you, I have to maintain this huge secret. How do I do that and relate to you with integrity? Right? So, damned if I do, damned if I don't. This is a nature of work. Nobody can handle it. It's the ring of power. And so, I don't have to be theologically savvy to understand that life is really about grace. I can just look at life itself and understand that grace is the only thing that works. That if we're to have any good thing in our life in a way that we can handle it, it has to be a gift. If we earn it in any way, it messes with us terminally. So here we are at our passage. Since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. Now that's the second half of a longer sentence. But enough to illustrate the nature of Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church. The Corinthians were savvy city people. It was like the New York City of uh, Paul's time. And so everybody was sophisticated and sexy and smart. You know, and they looked at Paul. They said, Paul, you're rather short. Did you know this, that Paul was a tiny little man? And he was a terrible speaker, and he was really, really boring. You know, in fact, his sermons were so long that they gave him a raise. That was a joke again. Not great. But in fact, (laughs) we get it. His sermons were so long, it says in one account in the book of Acts, that somebody fell asleep and fell out the window and died. He had already been speaking through the night by the time this happened. And then you know what Paul did because he wasn't done yet? He went downstairs. He raised the guy from the dead. And then he went back to the pulpit and continued preaching. True story. True story. He was not somebody you would look at and say, now there goes a winner. That's somebody who I want to look like, I want to be like, I want to walk and talk like him. Nobody said that about Paul. And so they were so confused. And they said, Paul, give us some proof that Christ is in you. Because if we we see Christ in you, we'll believe you. But their definition of Christ was sophisticated and sexy and smart. And Paul didn't seem like that. So this was their ever-present tension between the Corinthian church And Paul, we see this in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. So he's saying this. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet 
He lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. And Paul wasn't harsh with the Corinthians. This was the other thing. They expected Paul to come with carrots and sticks. And Paul came with neither. They didn't understand the economy of grace, the gospel of grace that Paul was living and preaching. And so Paul's logic was, listen, I am not going to present in a way that you understand as powerful. But I want you to know Christ, who is powerful, restrained himself and submitted his power under God's will. And in weakness, he was crucified on the cross. And that apparent weakness allowed God's power to be transmitted to you. Now you can identify with Christ on the cross because as vulnerable and as pathetic as he may look to you, that's what you are. And you need a Savior who is accessible. You need a Savior who is able to meet you where you are at, down there in weakness. And so he presents weak. But don't mistake in meekness for weakness. It's power under restraint. And the way I am presenting myself and the way I am dealing with you is likewise. In God's power, I live. But in my dealings with you, I appear weak. And this is the power of the other way to be in the world. That Paul, his form, which appeared weak, allowed God's power to move through. I don't want to live as a strong person. I know that. I know strength doesn't work. I know it's ugly. It doesn't smell good. It doesn't sound good. I want to know how to be meek, how to make room in the way of my being for God's power. So we live by faith and not by sight. And I want to end the sermon with two stories and two words. The first story is a story about me uh, when I was planting a church about, um, about 15 years ago, now it was, uh, in Boston, a church called High Rock. And I was invited to speak at InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, uh, the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship of Boston College, which is right on uh, Com Ave or uh, Commonwealth Avenue. It's one of the main thoroughfares in Boston and lots of little uh, streets empty into it. So it's really busy. It's multi-lane. It's got a divider in the middle. It's kind of a bear to deal with. And I was looking for a parking spot frantically because I was already late to my speaking engagement. I was counting on the worship leader going long while I was circling the blocks and I saw a spot open up and I pulled up to it, but in my excitement of finding this spot, I overshot it, and I ended up in front of the parking spot. And if you've ever parked in the city, you know you have to wait in the back of the parking spot, right? So the car that's in the spot can move out, and you can pull in exactly in the same motion of them moving out so that no other car can come in and take your spot. This is crucial to surviving in the city, right? But I was in the front, and sure enough, as the guy was pulling out, I saw this one car notice this parking spot from the other way. He pulled a massive illegal U-turn, I might add, and pulled up right behind this car. And I was in the front, now blocked by the car that was leaving, and I couldn't get in fast enough, and he pulled his front end in. And as soon as I could, I backed in my rear end into the parking spot, and there we were, stalemating over this one parking spot. I had brought a pastor friend, David, with me, and my New York City jeans activated. And I looked over at David, and I said, David, you ready? He was like, ready for what? By the time he asked that question, I was out the door. I slammed my door shut. I walked, strutted, I should say, over to this car's window, driver window. And this is the part where it gets illegal. I'm not proud of this. You are going to think less of me. I started pounding on the window for him to open the door. He wouldn't open the door, so then I grabbed his handle, and I opened his car door. Now, my sister, who was a district attorney at the time, said, that's a crime. <laughs> I'm not allowed to touch a car if you're in it, right? And, uh, but I did that. <laughs> I stuck my head in his window, and I started screaming profanities at him. 
I wanted to shock him out of this parking spot. I know, I'm not worthy of the pulpit. I know. I know. I know. And he's just a frightened student. Like, he's just a kid. And this pastor dude is yelling at him. And then the basic message I got across to him was, did you see me waiting for this parking spot? And his answer was yes. And I said to him, with more colorful language, then get out. And he gets out, and I pull in, and then I run over to uh, InterVarsity, and I stand, and I start speaking. And as soon as I stood up to speak, I realized, oh, no, what if he's in here? <laughs> and so I, I started by telling the story of what just happened. started with a confession. That's one way to live. That is one way to live. And I look at that guy. I remember him. I remember what it felt like to white-knuckle life like that, to always want to be right, to always need to control, to have goals and agendas all the time. That is a way to be, to be angry, to have anger right under the surface all the time, to have these righteous, self-justifying tools just at my arm's reach all the time, to live that way. I don't want to live that way. It led to burnout. It led to self-loathing. It led to me wanting to give up on life. It led to hopelessness. Because the math doesn't work that way. I just had to have my own Me Too movement where I arrive at these things and none of it mattered. None of it counted anyways. Who cares about achieving all those set goals? Now what? What does your soul really require you to live by? Live by faith, not by sight. And I know many of you live this way because I've been in cars with you. You are the third worst drivers in the nation, I believe. By sight. <laughs> okay, second story. It happened just this past week on Sunday. Um, somebody had contacted me. I had, I had listed two computer monitors on Craigslist that belongs to the church. And in my mind, I was trying to do a good deed. But things didn't turn out so well. This guy texted me and said, I'd like to come pick it up on Sunday, last week. And I said, great, come at this time. I'll be ready for you, waiting in my office. But I'm uh, at church, so come to this church office, and you can pick it up there. And he comes, he looks at the monitors, he nods his head in agreement, and he proceeds to pick it up, and he hands me $160 in cash. Now, my Craigslist ad had, I thought, said $160 each. But I looked later, and it was pretty confusing, so he was right. He thought it was $160 for both. And as he proceeded to pick up the monitors, and I'm counting the money, I said, oh, wait a minute, $160 is just for one of them. It would be $320 for two. And then he said, but your ad said, and I said, oh, I'm sorry about that. I didn't, I didn't know it was confusing. And then he just almost dropped the monitors, snatched the money out of my hands physically without saying a word, and he just turned on his heels, and he was gone. He just walked out. And you could imagine that scenario. I was just, like, shocked, and I was filled with adrenaline and cortisol. I didn't know what was happening and I sort of had to sort of sit there for a while and let the chemicals die down in my system. What just happened? And that was the most benign part of the whole deal. In about 10 minutes, I started getting a flurry of text messages from him. He was so angry, accusing me of intentional deception and all that. And here's the kicker. Here's the real twisting of the knife on his part. And after this, I had to block him on my phone. He said, the irony of the deception in your ad, tied to a church, cannot be missed. It's just pitch perfect. Oh, I wanted to go find him and punch him in the face in Jesus' name for insulting the church. <laughs> but that really hurt. But I stayed so calm. I just apologized. I said, I'm really sorry for the confusion. I meant no deception. There was no intent to deceive. And I will correct the ad, and I did. And nobody's bought the monitors yet. <laughs> but I think about these two stories, you know. I would so much rather be the guy that's being cursed at than the guy doing the cursing. I'm just a happier, better person that way. That form 
allows me to function better in life. And I understand the key really is to be weak rather than to be strong. So I want to end with these two words that come from today's passage. The first word, the first word is the word trust. Paul says, Christ lives by God's power. And he says, and so we too live by God's power. That means trusting that the God in you is powerful enough, sufficient for you for the whole of your life. He will, from start to finish, carry you through. And your job is to be weak so that the power from within can emanate outwards and connect with whatever ball you're trying to hit whether it's a conversation or it's work or it's money or it's actual sports, problem, sickness, surprise curveballs in life, the best way is to learn how to have really good form so that the power of Christ can move through you and that is the word trust. Do you believe that God is powerful? Do you believe that he is in you? Do you believe that that power can emanate through you because you are a conduit of the power of God? And the second word is the word restraint. It's the picture of Christ. You know what Jesus said? When Peter picked up the sword to be strong and cut off a, a servant's ear, Jesus said, Peter, put away your sword. Put away your silly little power from your extremities. You're going to white-knuckle that knife, and then what? And then what? Don't you know? One word from me, and my father will send legions of angels. Do you know when they said, we're looking for Jesus? And then Jesus stepped forward, it says, and he said, I am. And you know what happened to everybody? They fell, they fell down. Everybody just fell when he said the words, I am. That's power, but it's under restraint. And this is Christ crucified. The power of God perfected in weakness. What good is power if it can't save us? And how can we be saved unless he is weak? And so I want to invite you to pray here. Close your eyes. God, there is joy to be had. There is hope. There's a life of adventure, a life of faith. You are calling us to live. We want to live life by trusting you, by showing great restraint. Even when we have power, we want you to check it. So each person here, I invite you to think about your life and I ask the question, if you can trust God in these situations, what would that look like? If you can show restraint, what would that look like? Do you have to say everything you have to say? Do you have to spend everything you have? Is it really all for you? So God, minister to us throughout this week. Teach us to live this way. I ask you to teach us by showing us this week a couple of stories demonstrating to us how much better it is to trust you to live another way. Pray this in the strong name of Jesus, amen.